Hey everybody, welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I'm Neil Blackman. On this show, uh, Eric and I are going to break down Florida's close loss to LSU, uh, why the Gators' defense got them into trouble, why LSU's so hard to defend, um, and we'll talk about how Florida clawed their way back in only to come up short. Uh, we'll also preview the game against number one Baylor. The Baylor preview starts at minute 27 if you can't relive uh, the LSU loss, but um, we think it's a a good show for you. We appreciate everybody that's listening and um, enjoy the uh, rest of the week. And hopefully Florida can make some history on uh, Saturday. Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman. I am with Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com. Eric is enjoying the uh, Florida version of cold weather. He rounds out his vacation in Orlando tonight. Florida loses 84-82 by a fingernail in Baton Rouge. Uh, Gators are race, almost a race, an 11-point deficit in 75 seconds, um, but end up not doing that. And, um, you know, Eric... I, it's weird. I kind of feel like this was a game where Florida did enough on offense to win. Yeah, I mean, I would say so. I, I look at 1.15 points per possession, uh, <laughs> even in a game where they turned the ball over 12 times, uh, which, I mean, actually kept it to a somewhat manageable uh, you know, turnover number despite, uh, despite a whole lot in the first half. But, I, I mean, you look at 1.15 points per possession, uh, that's going to win you a lot of games. Uh, that's, that's a number that... Uh, you probably aspire to something even lower than that. And, uh, you know, you hit 1.15. Uh, th- that's great. So I, I look at it and I say, yeah, they, they definitely uh, uh, they definitely played well enough offensively to win. They played more than well enough offensively to win, really. Uh, but definitely the, uh, the defense is where this one was lost for Florida. Yeah, and I thought um, lost in a couple different ways. Um, just to sort of like high slot screens that LSU ran, Florida – had a lot of trouble with that. And early it was straight line drives, not getting into gaps. Yeah. You've seen them kind of make some adjustments in there. Like we know that they're going to play man to man defense, like 98% of the time. And, uh, but they have made adjustments within their man where, where sometimes they do play a little bit more. Uh, let's, uh, you know, deny one pass away. Uh, and then you've also seen where they have been like, Hey, let's play in the gaps a little bit. And they were a little bit like in between that. Like, I, I almost feel like they're, uh, their game plan was probably to get in the gaps a little bit more, but they 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 don't do that uh, a ton, and they probably didn't look as comfortable with that. But uh, but there was some times where there was you know guys kind of stunting to come help, like one or two quick kind of bursts towards the ball, but but not enough to like actually get there and like actually yeah. actually stop the ball. So uh, it, it seemed like it was definitely in the game plan to to be in those gaps a little bit. Uh, but not fully, but you know, Florida is not a team that is totally committed to stopping the ball with, you know, with the second player coming and, and helping in the gap. So uh, maybe they're in a little bit of no man's land there, but uh, yeah, they definitely didn't get, uh, didn't get those, those stops at the point of attack. And uh, you know, just something we've seen that there's times where Omar Payne is, is, is there to be a rim protector. But if, if Kerry Blackshear is the one in the area, he's not providing that um, rim protection you see from, from Kavarius Hayes. So uh, there's times where, you know, Skylar Mays gets that initial uh, burst and uh, you just kind of knew that he was going to get all the way to the rim and finish. Yeah. And I thought, I thought that for a team without a point guard, um, Javante smart did a great job of, 
of wind Florida did stunt somewhat and try to, to like almost it was stunning is kind of the right way to put it. Cause it seemed like they like kind of fainted that they were going to blitz the LSU guards and like, they just couldn't help that way because Javante smart was making good passes. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's something you see from all these pack line teams. You know, Virginia's famous for it now. Uh, but yeah, where, uh, where players who are, are one pass away that they do uh, slide their way in and, and, and stunt towards ball handlers. And, and, you know, sometimes even when you when you jab towards them, it's like you're not really going to get the ball. You're not really going to stop them. But uh, it does make them think that maybe you are going to come double uh, kind of deters those passes a little bit. Uh, and you can kind of do that as well against teams that don't shoot particularly well. And, and LSU doesn't shoot the ball particularly well and, no. uh, and didn't against Florida. Uh, nope. but, but still, I, I, you almost, that almost makes you think like, Hey, maybe Florida could have sold out a little bit more with those, uh, those defenders in the gaps coming to help out and, and, and stop the ball. Yeah. That's kind of what I, I, I should have, uh, I should have articulated my point better. Like, I feel like, the no man's land point that you mentioned is exactly what bothered me about it. It's like, you know, I think it's, this is like, this was a game where you really commit to it. You, you saw uh, actually Ole Miss have some, you know, do, do that effectively. You know, we saw how Florida was able to handle Ole Miss blitzing, but, but LSU struggled with that somewhat. And, and Javante smart was able to take advantage of it because I think there wasn't quite enough pressure. And what really ended up happening is, you just moved help away from the basket where, you know, you have to be able to help on LSU underneath because that's where they, uh, I'll say, make their money because it's LSU. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that that also led to a lot of the offensive rebounding, which is another problem that yep. you know, Florida had in this game. And, and I do think a lot of it was uh, was the fact that Skyler Mays and Javante Smart were just getting to the paint at will. And when that happened, uh, that turns into, you know, someone like Omar Payne or Kerry Black having to help over. And if they did miss, it was, you know, it was like the reverse of uh, what Florida did against Auburn, where Florida's yep. guards are getting in the paint. And if they miss a shot, uh, it was Omar Payne just cleaning everything up where uh, we saw the we saw Florida being the victim of that a little bit. And uh, and once again, I mean, when when you get dribble penetration in basketball, it's 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 tough to recover. It's it's uh, it's tough to rebound. Everything breaks down. And uh, I just think that kind of starting with. Uh, the fact that Florida couldn't keep the guards out of the paint, uh, that just kind of, uh, whether it was the points, whether it was, uh, you know, the 14 assists that Javante Smart and Skyler Mays combined for, or it was all those offensive rebounds. It was just all about LSU just living in the paint. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, they, they lived in the paint. They got to the free throw line. LSU only makes two three-pointers um, on the night. You know, if you told me that, that LSU would make two threes, I probably would have felt pretty good, Eric. Uh, but but the free throw disparity is massive. We can talk about the referees if you want. I mean, that's actually a pretty veteran crew. So, you know, I, if we're going to talk about the referees, we should note that that's a veteran crew that's worked final fours. Oh, that's good uh, research that you did. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's Mike Nance. It's a veteran. That's a veteran group. Um, two final fours for Mike Nance. So, uh, I mean, we can talk about it. I, I did not think... It was particularly evenly officiated. Um, but I also think when one team is kind of imposing its will underneath the rim, that sometimes happens. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of it just started with Florida's inability to kind of get into gaps or, or decide really on a definitive strategy to stop dribble penetration, I thought. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can see why it was tough to, to figure out because once again, like Florida is a team that for the last, you know, all of the Mike White era uh, has been a little bit more uh, not really playing in the gaps. It's been uh, kind of a little bit more taking pressuring passing lanes and, and making those yep. tough and and having a guy like Kavari Hayes or John Igbunu in the back to, uh, to help out of the rim. And th- that hasn't been the case. So. Uh, there has been a couple games this year where Florida has been playing in the gaps, almost like against, a, a little bit more line principle. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's something that is definitely seems like an adjustment, something I haven't seen Florida do a ton of uh, in these last couple of years, but um, at the same time, they're not fully uh, dedicated to, to playing that kind of like pack line uh, defense. Cause it's not really just as, as simple as just like, Hey, if someone has the ball, the point guard spot, other two guys, like, you know, take another step towards the paint. I mean, uh, which is, uh, it really is like a major shift in philosophy that you have to do. And uh, I do think that Florida's had some success uh, uh, playing in the gaps a little bit more and making some of those adjustments sometimes. But I mean, when you play against LSU, which is an awesome offensive team, uh, maybe these like little adjustments aren't enough. Like maybe you wish that Florida did have like um, a zone that they were really comfortable with playing more than, than one or two possessions to, to keep them out of the paint or something like that. Because yeah, the, uh, the little adjustments I, I don't think were quite enough. Yeah, they weren't. And yet Florida gets to, uh, it gets to the break with, with a two point lead that I thought, you know, quite honestly was, I thought it was good. I thought it was good that Florida could get to halftime with the lead, given the way that the game flowed where Florida builds the, I think, and I think it was either eight or nine in the first half that get a, get an eight or nine point lead in the first half. And then some freshman mistakes, you know, a silly, uh, kind of a, a silly play by Trey Mann, a couple of tough plays for Quest Glover, who had a steal and a layup, but then kind of went downhill from there in the first half. And they let LSU back in and got the crowd really loud. But Florida weathered that storm and ends up going in the locker room ahead. Yeah, those Quest Glover uh, turnovers were tough ones. And I mean, something that I actually thought was really interesting from uh, uh, from the Auburn game when Andrew Nemhard had to come out was like, you, you really saw who, who coach white trusts with a backup point guard spot. And, and it's Quez Glover over Trey Mann because when Nemhart was out and he had to play uh, Trey Mann and, and Quez Glover together a ton, it was Glover with the ball, every possession as a point guard. Like it's just like, it's very clear that, uh, that white trusts Glover more. And then you again, see a, a game like today where, uh, where Nemhart needs to come out and it's Glover all the way. And, even though he has a couple tough turnovers. So it is, it is just like an interesting note um, that I would say that it does seem very clear that that white trust Glover over, over man. Uh, but uh, there's some things that, you know, Glover still just seems to like really be adjusting to the, to the length and athleticism of, of SEC basketball. And uh, he just doesn't quite seem to know what passes can be made and what, what can right now. And uh, it's, it's making for some tough turnovers. Cause I mean, you look at that, uh, you look at, you know, he has three turnovers in the first half that turned into seven points instantly. Uh, those two he had in like kind of back-to-back possessions. Those were a three-pointer and a layup. So uh, you almost look at like those are three possessions Florida lost that, you know, they're 1.15 points per possession on the night. So could have been three more points. And he gave up seven points to, uh, uh, to, to LSU on the other end. So that's like, I mean, that's a big, that's a, you know, that's a seven or a 10 point swing in the first half. So uh, it almost could have been more, but, uh, uh, but like you said, given the, the situation with the crowd and everything, uh, you know, Florida did take a lead to the locker room. Yeah. And 11, 11 LSU points off six Florida turnovers in the first half. It's, I mean, there, there you go. I mean, that's kind of like, 
uh, how you avoid not, you know, Florida had a chance to maybe have a big halftime lead and, and they end up only up two on the Scotty Lewis uh, jumper. But, but then the second half, you know, Florida comes out, they run a great set. Omar Payne misses a bunny. He finally missed a shot. Um, and then the game kind of settled into a law where it seemed like Florida was defending pretty well for a couple minutes. And then, uh, you know, kind of a critical moment, especially considering Florida loses by two. We get kind of what I felt like. I didn't understand why Damian Fishback and whoever the heck was on play-by-play, I muted them. But I could read the <laughs> closed captioning, and I noted that uh, <laughs> they were – they thought that the Omar Payne tripping thing was definitely a flagrant one, and I didn't really see it, but that was four points for LSU right there. So LSU wins by two, and have a four-point swing on a flagrant one that LSU converted into a bucket on the ensuing possession. Oh yeah, just just happy that player could get up and, and wasn't uh, wasn't dead after such an egregious act of violence from uh, um, for Payne on that one. So uh, you know, okay, good, I'm good glad we're on the same. <laughs> We're glad we're hey, yeah. on the same page. Yeah, thoughts I, and I, prayers. I, uh, thoughts and prayers for sure. I, I certainly didn't see. Uh, I didn't see how that was. Uh, I didn't see how that was a flagrant one, but that, that's what they called. Yeah. And it was funny because then, like, they kept insisting that like Payne understood, and this and that. And I was just kind of, I was curious about it because then, probably, I don't know if it was moments later, but it couldn't have been more than a minute or two later because it was before the the media timeout then florida had a uh a play where keontae johnson drives the lane and uh i mean you could hear the slap on television um and he scores and then on the other hand skylar mays like beats his man around the corner but misses the layup and i i suppose he was fouled by air I'm not really sure you know what they called but uh so Skyler goes and makes two free throws. Um, so I know I wasn't going to rip the refs too much, but I did think that there were certain moments that were just kind of egregious. Uh, and, and the point I guess I'll make on that, Eric, is you have to play through that stuff on the road, um, but it is still sometimes hard to overcome like a 20 free throw disparity. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, it's something that's also just, you know, you look at the, the story of the game and that's a category that was pretty um, – pretty lopsided so you know it's something you got to talk about and either uh that's exactly what we saw happening so we talk about it that way or we we disagree with it and that's what we talk about so i think we disagree so uh, but it is something you've got to talk about and uh it was something that had uh, had mike white pretty fired up and that that really doesn't happen and i think again like you talk about a veteran officiating crew uh i if i see someone like like white getting fired up i've really got to think like hey like maybe there's something here because he doesn't he's not a coach who's just fired up all the time he's not someone who just uh works the officials for the sake of working officials because um white's not like that so if you know if he he is upset about something i mean i would think an officiating crew would watch for it a little bit but uh but once again i mean i I also do have to give credit to to lsu just because like their offense does just like get in the paint over and over and over and over and over again Uh, and that does put a lot of uh, pressure on officials and you know florida's offense isn't like that so uh, you usually see teams that kind of force the issue by getting to the paint a lot. You you usually see them getting the benefit of the doubt um, from the officials, and uh, I would say this is a little bit of a an indication of that, at least with this game. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's kind of hard to 
it's kind of hard to disagree with that. Um, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, like I said, if you, if you look Mike Nance up, he's a seasoned official. He's had, he's had some moments of controversy, but really not in a while. And, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, he's, he's been to the, uh, he's been to the final four. So, you know, a veteran crew, uh, over a decade of experience. So <laughs> just, just one of those nights, I guess, uh, where I didn't necessarily agree with, with the way that the officiating uh, uh, impacted the basketball game. Um, what I will say hmm. is that, uh, you know, Eric, I, Florida, I, I don't think that the rebounding issues necessarily were, were about effort, unless you're just talking about, you know, how Florida was defending drives. I really thought a lot of it was that help got sucked away from the basket and LSU was able to establish offensive rebound in a position because they're good at it. Uh, yeah, I do look at that as uh, I, 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 I don't look at that as an effort thing or a hustle thing. I know that's what a lot of people uh, on Twitter seem to, that was their take. Uh, yeah, I don't agree with narrative. that. Uh, Gator Country Forum, same, same deal. Uh, but no, I, I, I don't agree with that one. Uh, I just think that once again, you with, with LSU getting to the paint so often and, and shot blockers having to come over to help, uh, it just makes it that you're going to give up a lot of offensive rebounds. So I, I look at that offensive rebound category and I don't think it's like toughness. I don't think it's hustle. I think it's perimeter defense, which I know is like funny <laughs> if you say like, uh, you know, what was the problem with our rebounding? It was perimeter defense. That might sound weird to some people, but uh, that's kind of the case. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree. Um, so let's talk about like what some of the things that Florida did do. Right. I thought, um, you know, this was a game where I thought timeout usage was good. And you say, that's funny because Florida ran out of timeouts, but they obviously had a brilliant set at the end of the game. We'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, yeah, I mean, Florida kind of steadied the game really late through timeout usage, uh, changed their defenses enough to, to kind of take advantage of the fact that LSU didn't have a point guard. Asterisk that, by the way, I think for the meeting when LSU comes to Baton Rouge, it has to deal with crowd noise. Be interesting if Florida changes their defensive philosophy against them a little bit. Um, but you know, yeah, Florida storms back uh, from 11 points down. I thought a lot of it was adjustments. Oh yeah, I definitely think that they had some uh, some good stuff cooked up at the end to uh, uh, to get open looks, uh, obviously to claw back from 10 points down with a couple minutes left that's uh that's huge but you look at the rest of the game too and, and florida's offense was was looking good i even think the point total at, at half was uh like when they were actually getting shots up they were shooting an excellent percentage it was just a bit of a turnover problem and the turnover problems were them like were like nothing plays or like them turning it over before half like it wasn't even like they're trying to run a set and they turned the ball over so it really was like if they got into their offense like uh, the offense looked good, and I thought that uh, Andrew Nemhart took a lot of bad shots. I thought tonight, um, yeah. But I mean, other than that, he still also like you know had ten assists, uh, and he had some big shots at the end. And uh, so you like, I mean, you you erase a couple of those uh, bad shots. I think it's a really good, a uh, really good night for the general offense. I, I would say like uh, I looked at a lot of the other guys. I thought they they showed pretty good shot selection. I think it was probably just Nemhart that I had a bit of a problem with a couple of the. The looks, but at the same time, I mean, I would say he was generally pretty dialed in from a feel standpoint with uh, with some really nice assists. <laughs> yeah, no, I uh, I agree with that. 
um, you know, and it's funny, like if you, it's funny, I'm just going to leave this one out there for people, but if you Google Mike Nance, uh, you do definitely get a whole potpourri of different reactions. So I'll just leave it at very experienced and has worked a final four, but I did find one fun tweet from an old Florida, uh, Georgia game that Nance worked and is actually a very famous Florida Georgia game, a double overtime game, um, where Canyon the Canyonberry birthday game. And there's a tweet from uh, a guy named Tony Chavone, um, who writes at whwmonday.com and is a big Georgia guy. And his comment was. Mike Nance, James Breeding, and Tim Gaddis should never be allowed to officiate another college basketball game. That was the absolute most brutal thing I've ever seen. So apparently, you might not have known it, but Florida, Georgia, the Canyonberry game was was one of the worst officiated games of all time, apparently. Hmm. Well, I'm here looking at Joe Lindsay right now, who also officiated the Connecticut-Florida game from this year. Um, Okay. Didn't think the officiating in that one was great. Um, nope. I also looked that he was also in the uh, the Kansas Dayton uh, Maui Invitational game. That was like, oh, that was terrible. That was terrible. Um, and like, I feel like that one was like he like officiated in a way that was like, hey, let's get this one to overtime. <laughs> like, it was a little mm. bit of like, we knew this was mm-hmm. the game. So, um, so while you're doing that, I'm looking at Joe Lindsay's schedule from, uh, uh, if, and he also had because y'all. Oh, and he also had the Wichita State UConn double overtime game from the other day, which was also okay. like. Okay. Just like one of those like circus games of like r- reviews that like allowed it like Wichita State to get back in at the at regulation and like UConn at the end of the first overtime. So, anyways, quite the resume for for Joe Lindsay uh, as well, who was officiating. Looks like Mike Nance had uh, Connecticut Xavier with TV Ted Valentine. So um, that must have been a very. I, I was at that game. I didn't know that that was Mike Nance, but you know. Good times all around. Good times all around. We probably spent enough time on officials. I didn't think Andrew was great tonight. I, I would agree with that. Um, you know, one way of looking at this game, because I, well, I think there's two ways to look at this game, and I think both should be stated. Like you don't have to pick one. Things can be two things, Eric. Um, one, uh, Florida probably. If Florida wins this game, you feel a lot better about winning the SEC championship. I'll just say that now because now they're two games behind LSU. So uh, I know there's 12 to play and a lot can happen. But I do think this is the most brutal four-game stretch of Florida's schedule. And I don't think you want to be two games behind uh, Kentucky or one game behind Kentucky in either event. Uh, You know, you want to try to keep pace with the leaders. And this is where you steal one. So I think that's point A. Eric, point B is, um, I guess, the flip side, which is that you play Dante Bassett, no-go, flu, uh, Kerry Blackshear, some sort of virus, flu thing. Andrew Nimhart apparently still recovering from the flu, hasn't practiced. Uh, and, and they, you know, they were toe-to-toe with the defending SEC champion, probably a fingernail from overtime. Oh yeah, I mean, and there was there was a couple chances for them to fold, and they never did. And I think that's something we've seen a couple times. Uh, obviously, with like you know, you get a comeback like Alabama, but you also 
just see them coming back against LSU, who's a team that has played in a bunch of tight games recently and has come out on the other side. So yeah. uh, I, I do think that LSU knows how to play in these tight games and, and does well. So I, I, I will see that see the execution they had at the end of this game and, and just say like, yeah, you know, if you enter that um, down six instead of down 10 with a couple of minutes left, like, you know, Florida might win that one. So uh, that's got to be encouraging. And, uh, you know, the, it, it, what you were saying about the SEC settings, like I, I definitely agree that it sucks to fall behind because also you look at uh, you look at LSU's schedule and uh, I would say they have one of the easier schedules. Um, so they only have Kentucky once and they only have Auburn once. Right. So uh, they although and yeah, it looks like I forget who they have twice, but I, I don't think they actually have like Vanderbilt or Texas A&M twice. But but I know they only have Auburn and, and Kentucky once. So like uh, those are looking at obviously to be the uh, the better teams. Um, I think uh, I think they only have. Oh, yeah. I think they have Alabama twice and Arkansas twice. But anyways, um, I don't think that their schedule is like particularly difficult. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think that that uh, that lead that that they have could be enough for them to uh, uh, to take it all the way. So uh, that's uh this one would have been great for Florida to steal. There's no question, but uh, it just, I guess means that, Hey, Florida's got to go steal, steal a couple somewhere else on the road now. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, I, again, I still think 13 and five, 14 and four is the number. So, um, you know, you, you, you lose one. So you get through the first six at four and two, you have to pick up the pace at some point. You've got to go five and one in a stretch if you want to, if you want to win and you know, where's that going to be? Um, it's going to be tough next couple of games. So tough one, tough one to swallow, but, uh, still had a chance there at the end, maybe a little hometown clock cooking, maybe just needed 0.6 seconds. Great play call though. It was a great play call. And I mean, it was something right out of Florida's normal playbook. I mean, that wasn't like, uh, yeah, it wasn't like some exotic thing that white drew up uh, at the timeout. I mean, that's something that they, uh, that they run normally. And it's something that because of that, they were able to, you know, run really well in the moments. And uh, yeah, just, uh, just crazy that LSU had that like big of a breakdown, uh, whoever was guarding the inbounder, like let Florida inbound it towards the hoop, which is like not what you want to do at 0.5 seconds left. And I mean, you can talk about getting uh, uh you can talk about uh, obviously the fact that LSU just like completely lost Keontae Johnson uh, which is also hilarious because, like, if any, you know, if you scout Florida, that's like the one guy you don't want catching the ball near the hoop. And uh, so there's a lot of things that went wrong. So just, uh, uh, yeah, the fact that uh, it, it was about a fingertip uh, that really stinks. Yeah, it does, and and it, uh, you know, puts the impetus on Florida to to see if they can. Well, first of all, I think. When you look at the next two games, I hate to say this because the podcast listeners are going to throw stuff at whatever their listening device is. But the Mississippi State game is more important. Um, so there's my hot take. Uh, but you do have number one coming to town Saturday night. The Baylor Bears. Um, they are, what are they, 16-1? and one. That's pretty good. Uh, probably... Certainly one of the best backcourts in the country. What 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 hits you when you watch or listen or when you see what what Baylor is is bringing to town? Well, I mean, uh, going back to the off season when we were talking about this matchup, uh, and then even the start of this year talking about this matchup because we knew it was going to big one. Uh, you know, I was the one who was like, "Hey, 
Uh, Baylor's an offense-minded, offensive-minded team. They're they're always better offensively than they are defensively, and it was something that I always brought up because I feel like um, perception was that like Baylor's just this like tough defensive team that grinds it out uh, when like every year they're better offensively than defensively. Uh, well, actually, that's totally different this year, and they actually are a defensive team. So, uh, so watching Baylor play, I mean, I, I am definitely just struck with how uh, with how good they are defensively and how they can uh, kind of play a few different styles within within their man defense. Just like we were talking earlier about Florida making adjustments, uh, they really can like move around and uh, they can kind of protect the paint while while also really you, you can tell that they've really scouted to take away particular shooters. Uh, that was something like like watching a couple of their games that like I did these last couple of days to kind of catch up, just like just be able to like uh see the way that they uh to see the difference between how they play different opponents is is pretty impressive from uh uh from Scott Drew who I think that you know everyone has kind of come around to realize he's just a great coach but uh yeah it's going to be an interesting way for thing for Florida to attack because uh they're going to see a few different defensive looks from from this team and it's something that uh yeah is why Baylor has been so good this series because they defend so well yeah, they really do smother you, um, and and you know they do they do it a bunch of different ways. As Eric said, you know that you used to be really a predominant zone team, but uh, you know they have they have played more man defense this season. Um, they are really excellent, kind of in they're pretty much excellent in all uh, defensive aspects. Uh, they're pretty good at the rim. You know, limiting uh, limiting shots at the rim only only fifty one point eight percent opponents are shooting inside. That's a really good number, top thirty in the country. Um, they do a great job in transition defense. Um, so, you know, I think that they, yeah, just a very elite uh, defensive basketball team, and and I think to some extent it starts with uh, with guys like. Mark Vitale, who who's one of those guys who can kind of guard like two to five and plays much bigger than he is. Um, Freddie Gillespie has been a really big time surprise for them, I think, on the defensive end. And, you know, he's been so good that like Tristan Clark's only playing 15 minutes a game, who was their best big last season. So just a lot of a lot of good pieces on uh, defense. Yeah, and they're not uh, they're not particularly big on the wings because they play a lot of Jared Butler, who's six three, and Davion Mitchell, who's six two, and Macy Oteague, who's six three, and none of those guys are like particularly well built. Uh, they're all like kind of slighter, thinner guards, but uh, they will switch a lot to kind of keep those guys to you know to kind of keep Freddie Gillespie and, and Mark Vitale closer to the to the hoop with with Jared Butler at the top. So uh, watching him play against Oklahoma the other night. Uh, they really switched a lot of things, which is going to be really interesting for uh, to see how Florida attacks them. Just like knowing that, yeah, Baylor wants to switch. Um, this is a great time for the wedge ball screen to be used a ton, which like there's been a couple games where Florida has uh, used this wedge ball screen a lot where you uh, you set a bunch of uh, you get you get a bunch of guys moving. So you then set a screen on the baseline for the player who's then going to go set the primary ball screen for Andrew Demhart. So. Uh, what that kind of does is uh, it kind of confuses like if people if a team like sometimes switches away from the ball uh, they've got to switch somewhere within all the action you do on the baseline and then uh, usually that means that uh, that someone's going to be a little bit late switching on the uh, actual ball screen so I think this is uh, definitely a place for the wedge ball screen to come up from Florida because uh, that's uh, it's something that you use a lot against 
uh, teams that want to switch. But uh, especially if Florida is going to do kind of their their Princeton, uh, it'll be see it'll be interesting to see if they switch or if Florida uses those butt screens a ton. It'll be really interesting to see uh, to see if they switch. And uh, it's definitely got to be a game too that you you know Kerry Blackshear if if Baylor does want to switch and you get one of these smaller players on Blackshear, he's going to have to go to work. And uh, if Omar Payne gets uh, you know, a six foot three Macy Oteague on him. Can he punish him with just like a simple jump hook? I mean, those are the things that uh, could kind of uh, see how this game goes for Florida. Yeah. And, and on the other, the flip side of it is it's a different kind of Baylor offense than we're used to. Um, I really feel like, like Scott Drew has kind of embraced the small ball approach um, and, and kind of handed the keys to, to every to his guards and that's interesting because like how often did you see a Baylor team and say oh well they're going to feed the post whether it was uh Joe Lualakui or Jonathan Motley or Rico Gathers like they used to really love to operate in the post and now like their bigs pretty much come out and set high ball screens whether it's Tristan Clark or Freddie Gillespie and they spread you out and they space you and and they let Jared Butler and then the uh, UNC Asheville transfer uh, Masio Teague kind of get downhill on you and um, those two guys in particular Butler uh, and really Davion Mitchell also an excellent passer so they have multiple guys that that are good at passing when they get penetration yeah their guards are just really good and they're they're really interchangeable and uh, their first guard off the bench is is Devonte Bandu, who's another like 6'3", 190 guard. So it's like, you know, like Jared Butler, Macy Oteague, uh, Davion Mitchell, and Devonte Bandu are like all the same like six two, six three, like hundred ninety pounds. So uh, and they really actually all kind of play similar, similarly at least when I've seen them play. So uh, yeah, it really is like, hey, if they get a switch. Uh, if they're on a couple off ball actions and they'll say like, Hey, let, let's see who gets the switch and whoever has a favorable one. Uh, they run a ball screen there and uh, they don't play fast. They play pretty slow and methodically. And I think that a lot of that is like, Hey, let's recognize the mismatch and uh, let's go after it. So uh, I mean, especially in a game where, where Quez Glover got hunted every time he was on the floor by, by LSU, uh, it makes me wonder like, Hey, is, is Baylor going to do the same thing? Uh, are they going to try to go at are they going to try to put Kerry Blackshear as the, as the big man trying to, to, to guard these ball screen actions? Like uh, I wonder, because I do think it's going to be uh yeah, just like you said, it was, it's, it's a lot of their, their big guys coming out and setting high ball screens. Yeah. And I, one thing I would say that Florida should do, and I, and I, I talked about it with Eric uh, on our drive from Gainesville. I said, you know, I really think Florida should drop off some of those, do some drop coverages on some of those ball on the, some of those ball screens and stuff like, See if you can get situations where, you know, it's just Freddie Gillespie being open or Tristan Clark being open and see if you can force them to kind of, you know, decide. And Tristan Clark's not going to shoot, but, um, you know, Freddie Gillespie's they're, they're not going to shoot up there. But, you know, why not take advantage of that and drop off and see if you can help elsewhere? Because otherwise, you know, one thing that they, they really do space the floor well and, um, you know, they like with, with the three different guards, they just have multiple ways that they can attack you. You need that extra help defender. Well, one thing that does make them a little tough is that uh, to guard is that, uh, and it's also like crazy just because like, it, it's actually crazy how they're like three starting guards are so similar. Uh, but Jared Butler and Macy Oteague and 
uh, Davion Mitchell are all with it. Like they're all in the 99th percentile on synergy in terms of uh, jump shots off the dribble. And hmm. Baylor is the number one team in, in jump shooting off the dribble. And uh, I mean, it's mostly because of those three guards, uh, but they do have those guys that are all just like threats to shoot. So, uh, but I still think the drop coverage works because I think if you drop one of your big guys, as uh, you know, Carrie Blackshear's goes to, he, he drops and then you have Andrew Demhart chase over top of the screen. Uh, so with Andrew Demhart chasing over the top of the screen, he de- the ball handler doesn't have a chance to, to pull up. Uh, and it more says like, hey, let's go make that guy try to uh, try to finish at the rim. And that's where you start to look at the numbers. And it's like, oh, Davion Mitchell is a below average finisher at the rim. Um, oh, Macy Oteague, I just looked now. He is uh, he's poor. He's in the 12th percentile nationally of finishing at the rim. Uh, and then uh, lastly, we've got uh, Jared Butler is an average finisher at the rim. So you look at these guys, they're actually all really good shooters off, uh, off the dribble, but they're not great finishers at the rim. So uh, trying to say like, hey, let's when we're guarding screen and roll, let's say like, let's not let them shoot. Let's make them try to make a play at the rim. Uh, I think that could be wise. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. And I think what's interesting is I don't like I when I looked at this team before the season, the one thing I really thought was that they were really deep and like I could I was like they could play 10 they could play small they could play big they really only play seven guys sort of eight like they have a guard named Matthew Meyer plays a little bit um I mean he's just at 10 minutes so you know I guess they play seven or eight guys um when they play one one three which is their funky little zone they're producing turnovers at at the the rate that they used to a big problem they had last season Eric was that they fouled too much, 268th uh, in in foul, in sending teams to opponents to the line, and they didn't turn people over very much. They were 162nd. This year, um, they're not fouling, 35th, and they're producing turnovers at a high clip, 40th in the country. So by just switching defenses and being a little more guard-reliant, shrinking their rotation – They've they've definitely created some positive change on the defensive end. Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty shocking, just because of like how they were kind of known for that defense for so long. But yeah, uh, you kind of saw that, you know, like I mentioned many times, like they were never as good of a defensive team by the metrics that like everyone like they just had this reputation as this awesome defensive team, and the numbers just like simply do not back that up. Uh, whereas like you know now this year they're the fourth best team in. Ken Palm's defensive efficiency number. So it's like, uh, clearly that is, uh, uh, the change has worked. And, uh, you even, you even look at their roster and you look how small they are, uh, at the, at the kind of perimeter spots with just all these guys that are like six, three, like they don't have long physical wings, uh, yet they still play man to man defense and, and make it work. So, uh, but yeah, I think they're, they're really quick to the ball. I think they use their hands well, like not only just in like getting steals, but just like kind of pressuring ball handlers to like, not not have not be able to make easy passes like they go and guard screen and roll and they're just like really active with their hands taking away like a bounce pass to the roll man and uh forcing skips so uh yeah whatever kind of like maybe that's like an assistant coach who took that over maybe it's scott drew uh but whatever it is like it, it's really changed baylor basketball and i think that that's a reason why they're that's the reason why they're number one yeah, no, that and I, you know, Davion Mitchell, I think, is probably one of the mm. best on on ball defenders I've seen. So like, that's been a huge deal for them when they've played teams that have like one primary ball handler, <laughs> Florida, um, because 
Davion Mitchell really can get in people's face and frustrate them. Like Nico Mannion had a terrible game against Baylor, and it was all about Davion Mitchell just swallowing him whole. Tyrese Halliburton had a terrible game against Baylor, and mostly a result of Davion Mitchell swallowing him whole and Baylor like just being comfortable to switch two through four with with their switches, but put Davion on the team's uh, best ball handler, Butler. Um, really has multiple ball handlers. So it was a little harder in that game, but still worth noting that, like, that was Kamar Baldwin's season high in turnovers. So, like, you know, when you have an on-ball defender that good, it really does change the way that you're able to defend. And Florida fans will know that because they had Casey Hill. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting because, I mean, you you look at a player like that, you say, like, well, you know who's going to be guarding on Florida, and that's Andrew Nemhart. So, uh, it'll be interesting too. Cause, uh, like I say, like against Oklahoma, uh, Baylor just loved to switch a ton. Uh, but you know, I think that it would be probably wise for Baylor from a Baylor standpoint to just say like, Hey, uh, Mitchell, you're, you're not leaving them hard. So, uh, it will be interesting to see if they, if they kind of stick him on and, and play it a little more straight up man without switching a ton, or if they play the, the kind of switching stuff that, uh, that might make Florida's sets not work so well, but. Uh, yeah, we, we, we've kind of seen, like uh, like we saw a little bit with LSU, if the ball is not in Andrew Demhart's hands and other guys have to make plays, that, that doesn't always go well for Florida. Uh, so someone's going to have to step up like that. Like like I said earlier, it was interesting to see that uh, when Demhart was out, like Mike White totally trusted Quez Lever the most, more than Trey Mann. Uh, well, that was uh, that made for some, some tough possessions against Auburn, even though it didn't yep. matter because Florida won so good. Uh, and also just made for some bad turnovers against uh, against LSU. So maybe that means, uh, you know, Trey Mann gets the next shot. Uh, you know, he'll have to be ready because, uh, uh, yeah, there's definitely a chance that, that Nemhart gets taken out of uh, some actions. Yep, I would agree with that. So uh, we had um, Kyle McGill ask us what we thought about doing predictions and, and in terms of, Winners, and I said, I don't know if we're going to pick winners, but I said, what we might do is, uh, so he suggested, well, why don't you guys consider doing the spread? So I'm going to find out what the spread is, and, and we'll we'll go ahead and close with that. Okay. <laughs> okay, why not, right? Uh, why not? Yeah, I mean, I, I the, the, the predictions at times is... While while you uh yeah while you uh bring that up though I'm gonna have to point out that since Ken Palm has updated after Florida's which is just amazing because like if you want to know the net ranking uh you're gonna have to wait until like tomorrow morning like the next morning after a basketball game because the net takes like so long to update uh, but yeah. Ken Palm updates like 20 minutes after um so so Florida's up to 26th in offense uh which is amazing uh and but they are down to 48th in defense so uh yeah florida is an offensive minded basketball team something that i would not have uh you know something i've joked about on these last couple podcasts but i I, the the gap is widening and i think that it's uh it's definitely impressive that florida has been able to get up 26 offensively uh that defensive number has to get up but uh their their offense keeps rolling along yeah no it uh it does so We've got, I mean, this is basically nothing, but we've got a <laughs> Baylor by two and a half. I mean, how do you even really pick that? I, I'll take Baylor in the two and a half, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think Florida wins it at home, so I, I will take I, I like I, it. I, I know we're not in a huge prediction. We said we were going to do a prediction, but if the spread's going to be that close, I might as well just say that I do like Florida on their home floor. Uh, I, I just think that uh, Florida's been able to, to score a lot recently, and I think that uh, uh, while I think that Baylor's a pretty good defensive team, I, I do think Florida's going to be up to the challenge, and uh, I don't think that they're going to exploit uh, Florida's weak points defensively like some other people have, so uh, I, I think Florida wins this one at home. So, uh, you know, if the spread was bigger, we could, I, I could have made a little bit more of a spread pick. But I'll, I will just say that, yeah, I'll say Florida covers, Florida wins. There it is. We're going uh, we split decision with uh, Eric Fawcett picking the Gators to knock off number one in the Odo. Man, that would be fun. That would be fun. Um, anybody that's, that's up there, uh, make sure you come and say hi to me Saturday night. And, um, you know, you know where to find me. Eric and I'll be back with a uh, show uh, probably next Sunday, but we'll we'll figure it out, everybody. So um, enjoy and you know, tough one tonight, but plenty of opportunities here in the next week to get some quality dubs.